We'll hear argument this morning in case 09475, Monsanto Company versus Gersten Seed Farms et al. Mr. Garr. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Biotech crops have produced enormous benefits for the nation's farmers and consumers. The District Court in this case issued a broad-based injunction against the planting of a highly beneficial, genetically engineered alfalfa crop. In entering and sustaining that injunction, the courts below erred in two fundamental respects. First, they short-circuited the requisite inquiry into likelihood of irreparable harm because they reasoned that the agency was going to get into this anyway in the course of preparing its environmental impact statement. Mr. Garr, the uh, respondents argue that we should dismiss the writ here as improvidently granted, and I wonder if you could explain why that isn't the preferred course of conduct. They contend that when this was before the Ninth Circuit, your firm could have but did not contest the the cater of the APHIS deregulation order. Uh, It's argued that an environmental impact statement is likely to be issued very soon or fairly soon. Maybe the Solicitor General could give us an estimate. Um, If we agree with your argument that the Ninth Circuit applied the wrong preliminary injunction standard and remand for them to apply the right preliminary injunction standard, the case may be moot by the time they do that. And the alternative is for us to plow into the extremely uh, fact-bound question whether applying what you contend to be the correct in- preliminary injunction standard uh, relief would be warranted on this record. In light of all that, why shouldn't we take their, their suggestion? The Court shouldn't, Justice Alito. First, as to the vacator, um, we appealed the judgment that contains the vacator and the injunction. In our notice of appeal, which is on page 59 and 61 of the excerpts of record in the Ninth Circuit, makes clear that we explicitly appealed the vacator as well. And let me explain that a little bit more. But first, I want to say it's an environmental impact statement. The government can address that more. But my understanding is that we're probably about a year away from the environmental impact statement. This case presents important legal issues concerning the entry of injunctive relief. We think the Court properly granted certiorari and should decide those issues. We think that although the record um, is large, that this Court can decide, as it did in winter, that uh, as a matter of law, this record does not support a but, finding. But winter didn't, didn't involve something. It, I mean, as I understand the, the, um, the decision, vacated the deregulation order. Uh, you are not challenging that. Well, it seems to me if there's no deregulation decision in place, then we're back to the Plant Protection Act, and there's no authorization for the planting of these crops. So as long as you haven't challenged the vacation of the deregulation decision, I don't see how there's anything for us to deal with. We, we, we did appeal the vacator as well as the injunction, which is contained as part of the same uh, judgment. We know that the, dis- the However, you haven't in your brief. Didn't you say you weren't challenging the vacating order? You keep saying, I know you appealed it originally, but the point is that you didn't seek certiorari on that. Well, we, we our argument all along, Justice Sotomayor, has been that the court, the district court erred in not adopting the government's proposed judgment. If you look on page 184 of the petition appendix, that proposed judgment makes clear that it's intended to replace 
the, the district court's judgment, including the vacator. So all along, well, the whole you, argument about — You agree that those are two different things, then, right? The vacator is one thing and the injunction is another, right? They're part and parcel of the same judgment. It's true. A vacator is different than an injunction. But here and and it, it, under the vacator, the normal APA remedy is a remand to the agency. In fact, there are some courts that say you can't get anything else. But whether you can or can't, it's clear that the burden is on you to get something I would, short of uh, complete remand. The burden is on your friends to get uh, the, establish the injunction. The problem with combining the two, it seems to me, is that you're imposing on them the burden to meet the injunction standards simply to get a remand, to which they're entitled under the APA. Well, the, the district court could have vacated the order in its entirety and send it back to the agency. It didn't do that. It not only went ahead and enjoined the planting of RRA, Roundup Ready Alfalfa, but, but it actually — the vacator does that. You can't plant once the deregulation order is vacated. The, the, the vacator was in part. We know that because the district court's judgment allowed the continued planting and harvesting of Roundup Ready Alfalfa, the, the planting before 2007. So, it, it, so you would say that the injunction is limited only to a decision the agency might make to allow partial planting. Well, and, and importantly, the district court's uh, judgment, and it's on page 108 of the petition appendix, right. not only enjoined the planting of Roundup Ready alfalfa, it enjoined the agency from taking interim right. measures. It, right. Now, why did it do that? I mean, the way the APA works, this is sent back to the agency. If the agency wants to partially uh, deregulate, it can do it, and then you can challenge it under the normal APA procedures. And, and that it's a very odd to get an injunction to an agency telling them they can't do something under the APA. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. It is important that they enjoin the agency from from implementing the, the very proposed measures that we're now finding in the context of an injunction. I'm looking at page 58A, maybe that you, you referred to what as a, the district court's? 108A. Uh, it's 108A of the petition appendix. Because I thought that the only purpose of this injunctive provision was to spare the people who had already purchased seeds, allowing those to be planted until March 30, 2007. It, planting was allowed until March 30, 2007, and then that alfalfa could be continued to be harvested, seeds would be uh, harvested and, and maintained separately. But is it your position that that gives you uh, the, the hook, the entry point, for saying, well, now the district judge uh, didn't uh, just replicate in all respects uh, the universe without the, the, the regulation. It had some specific injunction inductive relief, and it didn't go far enough. That's yeah, absolutely. That, in combination with the fact that it actually enjoined the agency from what it could have done, what, otherwise what, done on what, what authority do you have for the proposition that when a court vacates an administrative order, it has the authority to tailor an injunction rather than simply remand the matter to the agency? Well, I, I think this Court's decision in Weinberger involved at least — an analogous situation where the court found a statutory violation of the Clean Water Act. It, it didn't involve the vacator of the decision, but the court then went on to add an injunction on top of that. So you had the statutory violation that arguably prohibited the I conduct. guess that uh, uh, 
Weinberger, of course, involved the statute. I mean, the concern is that the, the authority to determine how far to go in deregulating or partial deregulating is for the agency to make. And once there's been a violation of the APA, it goes back to the agency. What the district court did here was assume that responsibility itself. It, and we, at the outset, at the district court stage, if the, if, the agent, if the district court had done that, that would have been fine. It could have gone back. The agency could have adopted the very proposed measures that we're now talking about in the context of an injunction. The, the district court did not do that. It entered the injunction not only as to the sale of RRA, but as to the agency taking well, then, those then Mr. steps. Mr. Gar, I'm looking at the injunction, and it says um, that the deregulation decision is — vacated and Roundup Ready Alfalfa is once again a regulated article. We could simply say, as far as it goes, that's all right. Anything else is um, surplusage. We take it to be the judgment that Roundup Ready Alfalfa is once again a regulated article, period. Well, and, and we know the district court didn't mean that literally because its own judgment allows the continued planting and harvesting of RRA planted before March 2016. Well, I, I thought that was just a dispensation to people who had already bought the seeds. That wasn't uh, recognizing that, that they had incurred an expense that they were already to plant. That that was the only exception. Every, it goes back to uh, the status of a regulated article with this one exception. It, well, if it's a regulated article, then there's no use of it allowed at all unless the agency is granting exceptions. So the district court's grant of that exception was an exercise of its equitable authority in the context of considering respondents' injunction. Respondents have litigated this all along as though they, the injunction provided something in addition to the vacator. And this Court's case has established that the injunction is an extraordinary and drastic remedy that does. It allows people to go into court to enforce it. It provides an opportunity for uh, contempt sanctions. If I could just — if I could address the, the issue of irreparable harm, there, there are two key things that Court um, we hope the Court will understand and adjudicate the question of irreparable harm. First is you need to separate out hay production and seed production. There's absolutely no evidence in this record whatsoever of any cross-pollination from RRA hay fields to another hay field. So the District Court's injunction applies broad-based to hay production and seed production, but at a minimum we think you have to take seed production out. The next thing is, is that um, when it comes to the risk of harm — Hay production out. When, when alfalfa is grown for hay for forage as opposed to grown for seeds that which can then be uh, planted. The next thing to know is what we're talking about here is the risk that an Roundup-ready alfalfa will appear in a conventional or organic alfalfa field. We're not talking about um, transforming a single alfalfa plant in the country. It's the risk that an, uh, an existing alfalfa plant will produce a seed which will then produce another alfalfa plant, which would be a Roundup-ready alfalfa plant. So not a single alfalfa plant in this country is going to be harmed by the addition of Roundup-ready alfalfa. There, the district court found on page 43 of the petition appendix that Roundup-ready alfalfa provides no could, harm Could you to tell me what's the legal error? I, you started by identifying the first one, which was um, short-circuiting the irreparable harm. 
This seems more like factual correction, what you're getting into. Put it into a legal box for me. What are your legal claims? Sure. There's three legal arguments we have, Justice Sotomayor. The first is the district court short-circuited the whole analysis by assuming up front that since this was going to go to an environmental impact statement, it didn't have to seriously get into the likelihood of irreparable harm. And we think that that's clear error under this Court's Amico decision. And, in fact, Could you look explain, at Mr. Cobb, why that's so? Because I thought that the federal law is before the agency engages in an action that requires an EIS, it has to do the EIS. So... Uh, this unit of the Department of Agriculture violated federal law by deregulating prior to the completion of an EIS. Federal law in the regulations 40 CFR 1506.1a allows action to go forward where there's not an adverse environmental impact. The agency has explained in great detail in declarations that allowing the very limited use of RRA under the restrictive conditions of the proposed injunction would not uh, result in any environmental impact. If I could reserve the remainder of my time for a Thank you, Mr. Garr. Mr. Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like first to address briefly Justice Alito's question about the length of time that the agency anticipates the EIS will take. Uh, the agency now anticipates that its best estimate is that the EIS will be ready approximately a year from now. A draft EIS has been submitted for public comment. The public comment period was extended until early March of 2010. The agency has received on the order of 145,000 public comments. And so in addition to uh, parsing through those and, and seeing which of them need to be responded to, the agency wants to consult with other federal agencies. And so uh, this process is going to take longer than APHIS had anticipated at the outset. Now, we said in our brief in opposition that the, the fact that the EIS process was ongoing was a reason for this Court to deny certiorari. I think regardless of how good an argument that was at the cert stage, the Court has granted cert, and we think that the Court should decide the case. It, it, there's no realistic prospect that the case will become moot before this Court's decision is rendered. Could you go to the second part of Justice Alito's question, which was the issue of standing, both yours and the petitioners, what is it exactly that we're being asked to review? Obviously, you're going ahead with the EIS. You haven't sought a stay of that. that right. That's correct. All right. So what's the basis of the challenge to the injunction? When the district court issued its summary judgment ruling, it asked the parties to propose their own forms of, of a judgment. And APHIS might have done what the Chief Justice suggested ought to have been done. That is, it might have indicated that the Court that either it should simply issue a declaratory judgment or that it should vacate the deregulation order and the matter would have been remanded to the agency to decide what to do next. And if that had happened, the agency could then have issued an administrative order that embodied the same proposed conditions that were embodied in the injunction. Presumably the plaintiffs would have challenged that and we would have had a new lawsuit. Now, what APHIS tried to do in essence was to streamline the process by combining into one steps that could otherwise have been taken separately. And it proposed an injunction that said the deregulation decision is vacated and replaced by the following protective conditions. You have the burden to establish your entitlement to those conditions that are short of a remand, correct? 
I, I don't think it would have been our burden. That is, if the, if the order had simply been, the deregulation order had simply been vacated and remanded to the agency, and the agency had then performed the analysis that's reflected in the Hoffman declarations and said, we are putting in place of complete deregulation. Sure, sure. Agencies can do that. Agencies can do that. And it, on review of that, it would not have been our burden to establish that those. Well, sure, because, the, but here the question is whether the court can do that. The court is stepping into the shoes of the agency, and I would say it's — I mean, there's authority that you can't do that at all, but certainly you'd have the burden to establish that those relief short of remand, that, that you're entitled to that. I think in the ordinary course, you're absolutely correct. And in the usual case, it's an important principle to us that the court should not usurp the agency's role. Here, I think, in fairness to the district court, if the court had issued the injunction we proposed with the protective measures that were reflected in the government's proposed judgment, the court would not have been usurping the agency's role because it would have been adopting the very protective measures that the agency identified as appropriate. So we think that the district court — Well, you're short-circuiting notice and comment or whatever else is required. The reason we send this to an agency, because they're expert and all that, the agency is acting without the benefit of any uh, input on the partial deregulation. Well, it's certainly acting with the benefit of whatever information it received in the form of public comment in its original environmental assessment for the complete deregulation. And in addition, the district court, in deciding whether the agency's proposed conditions would have been appropriate, could have entertained comments from, obviously, the respondents and from anyone else who wanted to intervene. But to, to go back to Justice Could Sotomayor, you have — let's just — if this had — if the order had vacated the deregulation and sent it back to you, what would you have — the agency have had to do to issue temporary regulations consistent with the ones you propose to the district court? Our view is that we — first, that we would not have had to go through public notice and comment, because under 5 U.S.C. 553 B2, there is an exception for good cause. And here, the relatively limited time frame that we were talking about, in our view, would have constituted good cause. Obviously, the plaintiffs might have challenged that. Now, we would have had to perform some sort of environmental analysis to comply with our NEPA obligations in order to feel sufficient confident, confidence that implementation of our proposed measures would not cause significant environmental impacts. It wouldn't have had to be an EIS. That is, NEPA provides inappropriate circumstances. Can you stop right there? Because I thought the law was government agency, before you engage on a, a major activity, EIS first, and then you can have a deregulation order. I think that's — it is correct to say that as a matter of the statute and the regulations, an agency cannot decide to prepare an EIS on a particular act decision and then implement that very decision during the pendency of yes, the EIS. But, but our, our core point here is that what we were proposing for the interim, that is, allowing continued planting subject to various protective measures, was fundamentally different from the action on which the EIS was being prepared. That is, and as far as the Court is concerned, it's conceded that NEPA was violated and EIS was required. And then the District Court vacates the deregulation decision. I thought that under the APA, at that point, the Court is obliged to say, well, the agency engaged in conduct that was not in accord with law, and so we send it back. 
You are correct, and, and we are not asserting the right to implement the deregulation decision, that is, the decision removing all federal constraints from the planting and harvesting of RRA. We're not asserting the right to do that during the pendency of the EIS process. The CEQ regulations speak to this question, and they don't say, while an EIS is ongoing, no activity related to uh, the action for which the EIS is being prepared may go forward. They say, in the interim, the agency can't do things that will have an adverse environmental impact or will foreclose reasonable alternatives. So what the agency might have done at the outset was say, we need to do an EIS before implementing a complete deregulation decision. The effects of doing that are at least potentially sufficiently great that an EIS is being prepared. However, we feel confident that interim planning during this uh, limited period, subject to these proposed protective measures, will not have adverse environmental impacts. Do you agree that when you're talking about the elements of the injunction that are short of a remand to the agency, that the respondents do not have the obligation to meet the injunction standards with respect to those? In other words, it's part of the judgment. Uh, It's not an injunction. And you have the burden if you want the Court to do anything other than send it back. I I hope I didn't misunderstand the question. If if you're referring to the types of activities that would have been prohibited even under our proposed injunction. No, I'm talking about the types of activities that would be prohibited uh, if the Court just remanded it back, vacated it, which is everything. You can't plan. No, I think in order for the, the plaintiffs to get an injunction against those, they would have had to meet. I guess my point is they don't need an injunction. The, the thing that's bothering me is you've got two different things, the vacator and the injunction. And it seems to me by melding them together, you're trying to impose the burden on the plaintiffs to meet the injunction standard to get the benefit of the vacator. Well, I think if this had happened through the alternative events, course of events that I discussed previously, that is, if, if the matter had been remanded back to the agency and the agency had issued an administrative order that embodied these proposed protective conditions, then the plaintiffs would presumably have either filed a new lawsuit or challenge this within the, the confines of this suit. The burden would have been on them to show both that those protective measures but were — But you short-circuited that. Isn't this more akin to you seeking a stay of the vacating order? Well, I think The district court vacated the deregulation. No one can plant. You and the petitioners go into court and say to the court, stay — that deregulation with respect to this kind of planting, aren't you the one seeking to stay? And so isn't it your burden to show that you're entitled to whatever it is you seek? Well, all that the Court had decided up to the point when we submitted our proposed judgment was that an EIS was needed before the agency could implement complete deregulation. And I think in this respect, uh, the case is similar to Winter. That is, in Winter, in the District Court, the District Court initially imposed six restrictive measures on the Navy, and the Navy elected not to challenge four of them, but challenged the other two. I, I suppose that the Navy could have asked for, in a sense, vacature of its proposed action and then announced a new action that consisted of compliance with the four unchallenged restrictive measures and non-compliance with the other two. From our perspective, rather than short-circuiting the process, as I say, we were trying to streamline it. That is, 
the Court could have sent it back to us. We could have told it what protective measures were appropriate, and then some months later we would have been back in court to review the adequacy of those, particularly because we thought of the, any injunction as being something that would stay in effect only for the relatively limited period of time while the EIS was being prepared. We tried to speed up by the process by telling the, the Court in advance these are the protective measures we think are appropriate without the need for a remand. And the Court's fundamental error was in equating what we had proposed with the complete deregulation that was the subject of the lawsuit. I think that the, the agency's declarations explained why the protective measures that were embodied in the government's proposed injunction would have been fully sufficient to prevent irreparable harm to the plaintiffs during the pendency of the So EIS. that's the legal error you identified. That's the legal error we identify. We, we also think that the District Court did, without quite using these words, announce a presumption in favor of injunctive relief. That is, the District Court said, wrongly in our view, that it couldn't assess the adequacy of the proposed protective measures because that would duplicate the analysis that was going on in the EIS. We you agree, that will you agree that if the district court had just said the deregulating decision is vacated and Roundup Ready Alfalfa is once again a regulated article, period, that would be okay? And you would have no basis to prevent this from going straight back to the agency. I think the district court could have done that, and as I say, if, if — And all it seems to me that the district court did do, in addition to that, is to say that alfalfa seeds may be planted, alfalfa seeds, uh, alfalfa, alfalfa seeds that are, or have already been purchased may be planted, prior to March 30th, 2007. It's it, it, the only exception. It didn't just say that. In, in its judgment, which I believe is at page 108A of the petition appendix, and Mr. Gar referred to this previously, it said, in addition, that the agency is enjoined from deregulating, even in part, genetically engineered alfalfa. So the district court didn't simply vacate the the deregulation order and send it back to the agency to decide whether some interim protective measures would be appropriate. It said the agency can't do anything while the EIS is being prepared to allow the planting or harvesting of RRA, except to the limited extent that the district court was authorizing uh, with respect to already planted alfalfa. And in your view, uh, the uh, correctness of that ruling has been preserved in the questions presented to this court? Yes, I think, yes, I, I think absolutely, because the fundamental controversy, both in the Court of Appeals and in this Court, has been not whether an injunction should have been entered at all. For better or for worse, I think both the petitioners and the government have acquiesced in the entry of some form of injunction. The controversy has been, should the District Court have entered the government's proposed injunction instead of the one that it actually entered? And clearly, if the proposed injunction had been entered instead, the petitioners would have been better off because there would have been a continued market for their seed to, to planters who wanted to grow RRA in compliance with the proposed protective measures. That's and a little different than answering Justice Kennedy's question, which is, did you preserve the issue that the district court exceeded its jurisdiction in stopping you from further deregulation? So that's a different question than whether or not it should have granted your further injunction, which is according to you, a further deregulation. It's a different question. I'm not sure to what extent the petitioners or, or the government, frankly, have focused precisely on that particular language of the district court's judgment. But it has certainly been kind of the fundamental basis for 
our appeal to the Court of Appeals and for petitioner's appeal and certiorari petition that what they are complaining about was the fact that a complete injunction was put in place instead of an injunction that embodied the government's proposed protective measures. And we were focusing on the choice between two injunctions. We didn't focus specifically on the alternative course of action in which the matter might have been uh, sent back to the agency, and the agency would then have embodied those proposed protective measures in an administrative order. But, but I think the issue, whether those protective measures would have been sufficient to prevent irreparable harm to the plaintiffs, has been preserved throughout. Just to, to say one more thing about the CEQ regulations, this Court has held in the past that those are entitled to deference, and, and again, they don't preclude all action during the pendency of the EIS. Thank you, Mr. Stewart. Mr. Robbins. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In our view, petitioners lack standing to bring this case to this Court. By failing to challenge the lawfulness of the deregulation vacator, either in the Ninth Circuit or in this Court, petitioners have an insurmountable redressability problem. They cannot get the practical relief they seek even in the event that this Court vacates or narrows the injunction. And that is because the vacator, about which they said not one single sentence in the Ninth Circuit or in their opening brief or in their questions presented, that is because the vacator, which they never have challenged, had the unambiguous effect of re-regulating RRA. So if the injunction doesn't do anything, why are you bothering to defend it? Well, we're, we're defending it on the alternative ground, Mr. Chief Justice, that we have not persuaded you on our threshold question that there, that there is a lack of standing. If for, I mean, they've made various arguments as to why they have standing, and I'm going to address them in a minute. But, uh, uh, you know, there's always a chance we're going to lose on that question. <laughs> and, and although I don't think we ought to, uh, we thought it would be prudent to say something about the merits. Mr. Robbins, can I ask you about your client's standing? What individual plaintiff here stood to be harmed by uh, what the agency had done? Uh, Which one of them was, was within, what, five miles of, of, of any uh, — any field of the genetically engineered alfalfa? Well, the, the, the answer uh, uh, is that there are a great many plaintiffs uh, who put in declarations, litigated this issue, and prevailed, and there was no appeal from it. For example, in the courtroom today, Mr. Pat Trask from Western South Dakota, a hay and uh, conventional hay and seed farmer, who alleged, put in uh, proof that he stood uh, 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 if, if the deregulation went forward without any injunction, he stood uh, to, ha- to uh, a risk of cross-pollination. And what? From what? From what? From, from uh, both somebody a- within five miles, ten miles, well, twenty miles. We have to be clear, Your Honor. What, what, what was enjoined was the future proliferation of this product, where the president of the company told the district court, "If you let us continue." to introduce, in the words of the statute, this product, we're already at 220,000 acres. We will become a million acres, five-fold increase, 
And that was on the assumption that the EIS would take only two years. It's since been three years, and now I hear it's going to be a fourth year. So you want the Court to assume that somebody is going to be planting a field of the genetically engineered alfalfa within, what, five miles of uh, well, one of your named plaintiffs? Well, the fact is there isn't a single named plaintiff who, who has, has any uh, claim that within the utmost limits of, of risk, uh, he is at risk currently. Well, l- let me be clear. We have organizational clients who have who, whose members have yeah, put — But you have to bring in a member from that organization that's who correct. is concretely harmed. And we've put in declarations in the district court, multiple declarations from those members, and from Mr. Geertsen, the seed, conventional seed farmer from Idaho, Mr. Trask from South Dakota. But, Your Honor, let me, let me, without begging the question, uh, I actually think, I'm sorry? Factually correct that the harm is that from some seed grown alfalfa, a bee or the wind is going to take the pollen and put it into a conventional field? That, that is one of the risks, but what makes this case uh, — But is that — am I right? Yes. The, one of the risks is cross-pollination. How many states grow alfalfa to seed as opposed to letting it just grow into hay? Uh, most of the seed uh, production is in the, is in the Pacific Northwest and the West. There's a handful of states. So that handful of states, is yeah. that where the risks — no. Oh, no, no. The, ri- the risk was demonstrated at different levels and to d- d- different degrees, both in the hay-producing states and in the seed-producing states. You just states. said the word, different levels and different degrees, but this is an all-size-fit injunction. Yes, because and as So how is that reasonable when the risk is different depending on the place and type of growth? Well, uh, uh, th- there are different kinds of risks, and I'm happy to turn to the irreparable harm point, Your Honor. Um, uh, uh, the, the proposition that the risk must be sufficiently likely, which, by the way, does not mean more likely than not, a suggestion made in the reply brief, no court has ever said so sufficiently likely, talks in terms of the nature of the harm. Um, here, whether you were growing hay or whether you were growing alfalfa for seed, there is a sufficiently likely risk not only of cross-pollination or all the other ways that contamination happens through dropping seeds, through seed mixing, through custom cutting, through missing ends of Could fields. I ask you something? Is that because your farmers — I understood farmers of hay had huge tracts of land. Do they rent equipment from someone else to do it? They, they often do. There's custom cutting where — you can't, you know, you don't own the equipment. You hire a custom cutter who may be cutting an RRA field today and your field tomorrow. And the, 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 the risk, and this is all in the record, the risk of a seed uh, uh, contaminating another seed or getting into a hay field is easily sufficiently likely to not constitute an abuse you, you of You don't think the free market would produce uh, companies that advertise we only cut uh, natural seed fields. Well, I don't the, think that would happen. I'm well, the, sure the, it would happen. The record, Justice Scalia, before the district court, does not tell us one way or the other. Mr. Roberts, is it, is it relevant to that, that in the case of other genetically 
engineered crops, sugar beet, for example, soybeans, that the uh, plantings became overwhelmingly the genetically engineered rather than the organic or natural? Well, I, I think it's relevant to one of the categories of harms that we think is cognizable for purposes of an injunction, and that is the, uh, the, uh, the effect on consumer choice and producer choice to be in a non-GMO business. Um, and I mean, in response to Justice Scalia's point of how many now, how many at this moment, but you projected that there would be an enormous increase, and that was not just pulled out of thin air. I assume it had something to do with what happened to other crops. Oh, it, it's, it's not only, Justice Ginsburg, is it not pulled out of thin air. We're taking their word for it. Their president, FGI's president, said we anticipate a five-fold increase from 220,000 acres to a million, and that was on the premise that the EIS and would just take from, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just from the seeds blowing in the wind? No, from a range of contaminate, contaminating sources. Uh, 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 it's, it's I'm really losing you now. I thought he was referring to the number of farmers who would be planting and harvesting genetically engineered alfalfa. Isn't that Farmers who wanted to do it. He was saying we now have 200,000, we're going to have a million. Well, no, I'm talking about acreage, Justice Clark. Oh, acreage, whatever. He's talking about acreage of farmers who plant and want to plant yes. genetically engineered seed. Correct. He's not talking about how many unwilling farmers are going to have infected fields. No, I, I understand. Okay. But, but the, well, but I'm the, not sure we understood. But, oh, but, but, but I, I, took, I took Justice Ginsburg's question to be asking. Uh, what was the uh, the relevant risk that the district court had to consider for purposes of irreparable harm? And certainly one factor which powerfully distinguishes this case from the court's decision in winter is that whereas the Navy had been running these uh, exercises for some 40 years and there, were, there was a well-developed track record as a consequence, here this is a new technology that was about to spread at least five-fold over two years. But I, I do want to get back to the to what I think is the insurmountable uh, problem that the lit, that the petitioners have uh, on the issue of standing, because Mr. I heard Mr. Gar say this morning, in answer to one of uh, uh, the court's questions, that the that the notice of appeal recited the vacator as part of the notice of appeal. That is true. That is because the notice of appeal, like most notices of appeal that lawyers file, simply quoted the judgment. But when you get to the papers, the briefs, the questions presented, the argument, the oral argument, the questions presented in this Court, the opening brief, there is not a single word saying that the vacator was wrong. And that's important because, as I believe the Chief Justice was adverting before, the vacator does not is not governed by the same injunctive standards. But that, there's a flip side of that, that that is not so good for you, because one of the things you want from the injunction is a prohibition on the agency partially deregulating. Well, you're not entitled to that, because the vacator sends it, should send it back to the agency, and they can decide, and if they decide to partially deregulate, you have the APA challenges available to you. I, I think, Mr. Chief Justice, there is some considerable force to the point that uh, the injunction in that respect exceeded the scope of the vacator. Um, and it may be, it may be 
that they have standing only to challenge so much of the injunction as exceeds the scope of the vacator. But that's not what they want. What they want is to do all the planting that the vacator says they may not. Um, uh, and so I, I — So your argument is that the district court judge made a mistake in mixing up the vacator and the injunction? Uh, I would put it slightly differently. I would say that uh, the mistake that was made was in not uh, appreciating, though it was called to his attention by the lawyers I, I uh, by the party I represent, that the vacator did have this effect. Um, uh, uh, I do think that um, uh, the injunction was sort of allowed to be litigated. Uh, there were many reasons why they litigated the injunction. We, for example, wanted a more demanding injunction. But isn't one of the reasons that they litigated the injunction was that by its terms and because of its issuance, the agency on remand could not have adopted uh, some partial measures to allow controlled planting? Yes. That is a reason why uh, uh, my clients sought the injunction. They saw other. They saw other things in the injunction as well. But but, but no. But isn't that the, that isn't that the reason that the manufacturers Monsanto contested the injunction? They said uh, because once the injunction is issued, as the government's told us today, uh, they cannot issue some partial uh, regulatory scheme uh, with, uh, with with safeguards. I, there, there is there. That, that's doubtless one reason why they litigated the injunction. But it is not a reason, Justice Kennedy, that they have standing. Because vacating the current injunction uh, will give them nothing that they that they that isn't already prohibited by the vacator, except, and I, I grant you this, it will allow them to go back to the agency, seek a partial deregulation, which Mr. Stewart. But that, told but, that but that is substantial. It takes time, and and the district court injunction that's now, in effect, prohibits that, and they have standing to challenge that. Well, I'm, I'm not — At least that's their argument. Uh, yeah, uh, that is their argument, but it isn't right. And, and here's why. Uh, uh, one of the standing requirements is imminence, uh, uh, that it must be an actual harm or an imminent harm. Now, here are the things that would have to happen for that scenario to come to pass. It would have to be remanded to the agency. Mr. Stewart told us this morning there would have to be at least an environmental, uh, an EA prepared that may or may not uh, uh, come out in favor of a partial deregulation. There would then be uh, — I, I don't mean to interrupt your answer, but if they've already done an EA in support of total deregulation, presumably, and they found no adverse sufficiently. Presumably that would be a fortiori for partial. Well — we, we don't know. I, I heard Mr. Stewart, who speaks for the government, tell us that it would require additional steps. But this Court's imminence cases, you know, uh, can't do, — do not uh, uh, accommodate this many ifs. It seems to me pretty doggone imminent if the agency has come before the Court and said this kind of partial deregulation ought to be allowed and we're in favor of it. I mean, you're not sending it back to an agency that's a blank slate. You know that the agency favors this degree of deregulation. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, boy, I'd, I'd take uh, well, a remand to the agency any day. Well, I, I can, I can uh, tell you, uh, Your Honor, uh, uh, maybe the, the best authority I could give you on how imminent this is, how 
whether it really meets this Court's standing tests. Here's what petitioners said about this exact scenario uh, when they were in the Court of Appeals. They said that the prospect of a future grant of partial deregulation is, quote, a hypothetical NEPA controversy, end quote, that, quote, rests upon contingent future events that may not occur as anticipated or, indeed, may not occur at all. I take that to be the very definition of what is not imminent for purposes of this Court's standing case. Can I go back to something you said a while ago, that likely does not mean more likely than not? Yes. It's, I thought that would be obvious. If I say your friends are likely to win, that means they're more likely than you. Well, I, I, you know, I think the, the, the answer is contextual, uh, but in this context, likely uh, for purposes of an injunction, Mr. Chief Justice, has, I think, never been understood to mean more likely than not. Do you have I, — I was surprised that this apparently hasn't been decided over the however many years we've had this standard. Is there a case that says likely does not mean more likely than not? No. But there are cases — I mean, the issue has not been — uh, addressed by this Court one way or the other, I would say uh, uh, City of Los Angeles against Lyons and the Amico case both use the phrase sufficiently likely, and the lower courts have understood that to mean sufficiently likely in light of the nature of the harm. Consider, if we were talking about the probability of the contamination of the water supply of New York City, would anybody suppose that the pro- if the probability were 10 percent rather than 50.9 that no one could go into court and get an injunction? Uh, neither the private litigants, you know, put them to one side. The government's own authority to obtain injunctive relief would be critically hampered if such an order came about. This isn't contamination of the New York City water supply. It's uh, the creation of plants uh, of, of uh, genetically engineered alfalfa, which spring up that otherwise wouldn't exist. It doesn't even destroy the current plantings of non-genetically engineered alfalfa. This is not the end of the world. It really isn't. Uh, the, the, the most it does is make it difficult for those farmers who want to uh, cater to the European market, which will not accept genetically engineered alfalfa. It makes it more difficult for them to have a field of 100 percent non-genetically engineered. But that's not the end of the world. Mr. Robbins. I don't think uh, we bore the burden, uh, an end-of-the-world burden, uh, uh, Justice Scalia. We bore the burden to show sufficient evidence of irreparable harm such that on an abuse of discretion standard it was appropriate. But let I me thought say, you were comparing it to New York City dying no, from no, I was, poisoned I, water. It had been my purpose to simply try to suggest that it does not make sense to adopt a more likely-than-not standard for likelihood of success or likelihood of irreparable harm. But I do, if I could come to Your Honor's question about what the harm really is. There are three types of harms. Uh, There is the contamination uh, of products, and we've talked about that, but there are two things we've not talked about. One of them is the choice to be in a line of business that farmers and businessmen across this country have chosen to be in. Some of them are in this courtroom today. They have chosen organics or conventional farming that is GMO-free. They have chosen to sell natural beef. And they have chosen this in a rapidly growing large business with billions of dollars at stake. 
You mentioned, for example, Justice Scalia, the European market. That is just the tip of the iceberg. The Japanese will not take, and which take, by the way, 75 percent of our alfalfa exports, will not, despite their gov- formal government policy, will not take GMO products. Mr. Robbins, but if, as is likely, I think the government told us that the EIS is about a year away, but that the EIS is going to say deregulate. Yes. It's going to recommend a deregulation decision. So we're talking about the, whatever the farmers of organic or conventional, if they're only a year away from, so they will have to accept that there are other planters who want to do the genetically engineered crop. Well, uh, I think uh, history remains to be written about what will happen in response to that draft EIS that's a year away. Uh, um, we'll see how it comes out. But I think but you yourself told us how it came out with other crops, that, that the genetically engineered crop was very popular and took over. Yes, it's very popular, um, but uh, it's also, you know, past this prologue, we've seen what happened with genetically engineered corn. You can ask Taco And that's Bell. a decision for the government to decide, APHIS and their lawyer, Mr. Stewart, who's in the courtroom, told us what the APHIS view is. Yes, I understand. Um, uh, Excuse me, could you tell me, just, just to clarify one factual matter, the popularity of corn and the other genetically engineered crops, um, is that from contamination or is it just from, consu- from consumer choice, i.e., that that's what farmers like because it's easy to grow? What happened with corn? You, you, you said, gee, I, I was unaware. I've been eating corn all this time. Well, there was this what so-called with it? there was the so-called Starlink controversy in which uh, uh, there was genetic contamination of corn. There was genetic contamination of uh, organic soybeans in uh, organic canola in Canada. There was 0.06 percent contamination of or, uh, of rice from genetically engineered rice that nearly sh- that, that cost the rice industry, as the rice growers' brief uh, makes clear, amicus brief makes clear. The fact is the judge had before him all of this evidence, and he said it is sufficiently likely to, rep- to constitute irreparable harm. Now, Justice Ginsburg, it is correct that the draft EIS says this is coming. So in a year, six months, whenever it is, People may have to get ready for a brave for a, for a, for a different world, if not a brave new world. Uh, but it's worth looking at that draft EIS because it is very candid about how different the world will look. It tells us we know this is going to shut down the, the the export market. We know that the Japanese and the Koreans and the Europeans won't buy your products. We know this will hasten the consolidation of farming. We know it will hasten the, demi- the it will hasten the demise of organic farming, a rapidly de- uh, developing business in this country. All arguments you can make before APHIS, and which presumably were made before APHIS, yes, and can be made before APHIS if this is remanded. Indeed. It doesn't entitle you to an order saying APHIS can't do anything in the meantime. Um, I, I agree that there is a respect in which the injunction goes beyond the vacator. Um, and I think, you know, there are arguments why the district court took that additional measure. But I, I think the upshot is 
that if that is the only respect that the injunction exceeds the limit of the vacator, I don't understand how the petitioners can possibly have standing to argue all the things that they argue, which is we want to plant tomorrow, we want to plant the next day, we don't want to have to go back before the agency and let them do another EA. We don't want to have uh, more litigation over a partial deregulation. We want to plant now. That's their argument before this Court. And that is precisely what the vacator tells them independently they may not do, and they didn't challenge that. They didn't and they haven't. They didn't say a word until we brought it up in our bottom side brief. Then we heard about it. Um, and, Justice Kennedy, this is precisely the situation that, that uh, was before this Court in Rennie against uh, the, the, the California constitutional provision that, in which Your Honor wrote the opinion for the Court, where there are overlapping uh, 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 provisions or, or for, you know, two pieces of law that have overlapping effect, and you challenge one but not the other. You have a, a fatal redressability problem. That's where we are today. Um, uh, and I have not heard — I mean, I understand that the vacator was perhaps only in part because the judge in his discretion grandfathered certain pre-March 30 uh, growers. Uh, fine. Uh, maybe it was, therefore, a partial vacator. But whatever form of the vacator it was, they didn't challenge it. Well, it's kind of artificial to separate the two out. I mean, it's one judgment, and they say they're intertwined. The injunction is based on — the vacator. And so if they challenge the injunction, you can't say, well, they're not challenging the vacator. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that it's fair to say that the injunction is based on the vacator. But uh, uh, I do want to — I do think, though, Mr. Chief Justice, that e every appeal is from a judgment. I mean, that's more or less, except in unusual circumstances, that's the only thing you can appeal. But if I were, for example, appealing a criminal conviction, a judgment of conviction entered its sentence, and I raise only evidentiary arguments, and I fail to raise the sufficiency of the evidence, I, I can't get a dismissal in the Court of Appeals uh, because I have I've failed to raise an issue, and it will not avail me one whit to tell the Court of Appeals, well, gosh, I appealed the judgment, and the sufficiency of the evidence is embedded in the judgment. No. The way we appeal things in this country is we write sentences in our briefs about them. We write questions presented. We present questions to this Court. And I will say that although all manner of arguments have been smuggled under the tent through the camel's nose in this case, when I look at the questions presented in this case, you've got to really squint to find even some of the arguments they have made, much less this one, which so they have not have made. So we have to decide, for you to prevail on that, we have to decide that the injunction does no more uh, than the vacated. No. I, I think what we — I think the question is whether the relief that they are seeking uh, uh, is separately uh, prohibited by the vacator and whether that excess, uh, which uh, may arguably go beyond the vacator, is sufficiently imminent to meet this Court's standing cases. So, so the district judge was wrong. He, he should have — if you say the injunction adds nothing to the vacator, he should have ended by saying it's vacated. Uh, I think that was an available option. Uh, um, uh, I think the reason he didn't is that, among other things, the, uh, the parties were arguing about whether the, the 
the injunction should be broader than the vacator. And, of course, he had the authority, the government has told us in its brief, to decline to vacate at all. So it's not as if the remedy phase had no point. It had a point. It was all up for grabs. But in the end, he issued a judgment with multiple parts, only a subset of which petitioners elected to appeal. That was their choice. But now having made that choice, it seems to me surpassingly odd to draw this Court into a close reading. And this goes back to one of the first questions of this morning from Justice Alito. The question about digging into this, what the District Court appropriately called the voluminous record of, 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 of declarations and evidence, uh, that's an unusual, just a, a, I think a passingly a passing strange use of this Court's resources to dig into those materials when, in point of fact, we we don't necessarily have to do that. We just have to decide whether the lower courts did it. Well, I mean, uh, if we concluded they didn't do it, that would would be enough, wouldn't it? We wouldn't have to do it ourselves. Respectfully, Justice Scalia, I think the only way you can say they didn't do it is by doing it yourself, because they said they did it, you look at pages. They also said stuff would suggest that they didn't do it. Well, uh, uh, I, I won't, uh, and I am not here defending every uh, particular line in some of the opinions. But there is no question that at 69A through 71A of the petition appendix, the district court articulated the standard four-part injunction uh, uh, test. The Court of Appeals articulated as well, said that the evidence was sufficient, and indeed, in this record, there is sufficient evidence to warrant a finding of a likelihood of irreparable harm, reviewable under an abuse of discretion standard. If you're, if you're right that the injunction does nothing, they don't have standing because of that, we should throw the injunction out. Well, I, I, I think, given that standing is a threshold question, uh, I don't see how the Court could do that. Um, I think the Court could say, we conclude that the vacator prohibits exactly the same things as the petitioners are demanding from this Court. They didn't challenge it. They have a redressability problem. Case dismissed or dismissed. We don't have to worry. The government doesn't have to worry about standing, does it? Well, the government has, well, the government, I think, has the same vacator problem, but I don't think that's a burden I have to meet because under, uh, uh, I think it's Diamond against Charles, uh, the, the standing has to be by the party that called upon this Court's jurisdiction. In deciding irreparable harm, what weight, if any, should be given to the proposition that there was an uh, environmental impact uh, regulation violation as opposed to just a regular suit between, say, two farmers over a nuisance? Uh, what weight do we give to the fact that, let's assume there's an a, a violation of the rule requiring environmental impact statement. Well, it, it's it, it, that that is not alone a sufficient harm to justify an injunction, is it? No, and no, no one is claiming that an, an EIS violation standing alone gives rise to an injunction, but it carries some important weight. And if I could just answer the question, notwithstanding the red light, the answer to the question is uh, uh, the fact that they violated the EIS requirement tells us at a minimum that this was a significant, a major federal program that had a significant impact on the environment. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Garr, you have three minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Justice Kennedy, to answer your question, this Court in Amico 
held that you don't give special weight to that, that you apply the traditional equitable factors. We, Your Honors, we absolutely did challenge your, the vacator below. That's spelled out in note one of our reply brief. The whole fight in this case going forward since the district court has been over whether or not the court erred in not adopting the government's proposed measures. On page 184 of the petition appendix, it makes clear that the government's proposed measures were intended to replace the deregulation order. So the vacator and the proposed measures are one of the same. A real problem, if the whole appeal is over whether or not the district court should have accepted the agency's uh, views, the agency has told us that it has um, sidestepped going through all the regular, all of the administrative steps it was required to. It may not have needed to give notice, but it needed to do some form of an EA and get comments and do other things, and it didn't do that. Well, it, so how can we say that the district court acted improperly when it's the government who's asking the district court to forgive it from doing something it's legally required to do? The, the district court at least acted improperly in enjoining the agency from doing that on remand. And if that's all the court thinks it no, did that, improperly. My, my problem it, is I don't see that argument either in your brief or theirs. Well, it's I part- see only the argument that it erred by not accepting something that the government had no power to do outside of the regulatory it's, it's, it's Our view is it's part and parcel of the vacator order. The district court looked at this in the context of the injunction and posed um, those traditional factors in examining the scope of relief. I mean, it's important for this court to set aside. How do you answer Mr. Robbins' uh, imminence argument? In terms of going back for the inmates, we're operating under this injunction, which is unlawful. It's preventing, it's causing real harm to the nation's farmers today. There couldn't be more imminence in terms of the harm that we suffer because of this erroneous injunction. And with respect, it's, it's the farmers that are challenging But wouldn't this. it be it, the same problem for the farmers if we had only the deregulation decision vacated? They it, can't do anything until the agency then gives them permission to do that. It could that. go back. The agency could allow those measures to be implemented, and, um, and that would solve our time. problem. I mean, it's going to take time, and, and you have the EIS on track within a year, so you're going to do this uh, other operation in six months? N- not necessarily, Justice Ginsburg, but, but with respect, we've been operating under this erroneous injunction for three years. This Court should say it's erroneous. There are other cases that are repeating this pattern. It's important for the Court to correct this error. And, and briefly on the question of harm, there are no instances in this record of any cross-pollination with hay, only a couple of, a few isolated with respect to seed, and their harm really boils down to a question of their psychological objection to genetically engineered alfalfa. That harm is not cognizable under Metropolitan Edison or anything else. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.